just yesterday, my wife and I, we are, we're getting ready to move. Uh, we're making a local move about 10 minutes from where we currently are. And we were trying to file some important papers away in our file cabinet. And there was a problem because the, the file cabinet was locked. And see, we lost the key. And uh, so I spent about 10 minutes looking for the key. And to no avail, I found no key. And, and so in my own obstinate impatience, I decided that it was in my best effort to go ahead and take a pocket knife and start digging through the lock and see if I could actually unlock the cabinet by myself. Meanwhile, while I'm doing this, my wife is looking at me and saying, honey, this isn't going to work. Stop. You're going to tear the lock up. Let's just try to find the key. And I, I was impatient. And I said, nah, I think I can do this. Well, obviously, you probably figured out what happened. I tore the lock up, and we ended up having to take a crowbar to the file cabinet so we could open it. <laughs> we are looking at the gospel passage in Matthew again this morning where Jesus gives his parable of the weeds. If you were here last Sunday, you may remember that, the, that we looked at the parable of the sower and how the sower sows seed, which is the word of God. And those who hear the word of God well and bear fruit are the ones who enter into the kingdom of the Lord. And as I noted last week within Matthew's narrative, these parables answer a question that was raised by the actions that took place in chapter 12. And the question was, why do people reject Jesus? Why do they reject his message and enter into conflict with him? Well, the parable this morning is the parable of the weeds. And in this parable, it is about waiting well. It's about waiting well. Indeed, it could be said that those who wait well will be the ones who see the power and the glory of God. So we hear this parable, and and right off the bat, we notice again a sower sowing good seed in the field, and we discover that this sower, this farmer, has an enemy who comes in the night to sow weeds in the same field. It seems as though this parable takes over where the first parable of the sower left off, and that is the good soil. The enemy also sows seed. This means that Satan, too, works through the power of the word and confusion. He, too, uses a message in words. We remember very vividly, right, the temptation of Jesus. And when Jesus was tempted for 40 days, the devil came to tempt him and came to attack him. And what did he use? He used the scriptures to attack Jesus. And yet Jesus came back to the devil with the scriptures and his answers. What this means to us, my friends, that if the devil can't keep the good seed from hitting the good soil and striking root, which is his first goal, he then works next to distract workers from their preoccupation with the Word of God by overwhelming them with a loathing of evil. You see, if the enemy cannot strike the root, he will smash the fruit. If he cannot hinder faith, he will corrupt love. This is how the evil one works. And so suddenly the day arrives when the wheat bears fruit and the weeds reveal themselves as weeds. It's important to note that this weed is called zizania. And zizania looks just like wheat. In fact, when it is first uh, put into the ground and it, 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 it grows just a bit, wheat and zizania look the same. You can't tell them apart. And it's not until that it's time to harvest crop that you can see the difference between wheat and zizania. 
Wheat is drooping because it's heavier. It actually has something in the seed. Zazania doesn't. It stands straight up because there's nothing in it. It's a hollow shell, which I think speaks very vividly about the lives of those who are truly in the kingdom and the lives of those who are truly not in the kingdom. We're either full of the Holy Spirit or we're full of ourselves. And if we're full of the Holy Spirit, we have something bearing fruit within us. But if we're full of ourselves, we're empty on the inside. And there's nothing bearing fruit there except fruit of wickedness. So this, my friends, tells us that the wheat and the weeds grow together. And they are difficult to tell apart. And when true colors are shown, when it seems clear just who bears good fruit and who does not, the crisis arrives. And you say, Pat, what crisis? It's a crisis that releases two questions. One is theological, and it's this question, how can this be? How can this be? And secondly, it's an ethical question. What should we do? What should we do? The servants of the farmer assume that the sower, the farmer, has sowed only good seed in the field, and rightly so. But they immediately come to the real question. Then, Master, where did all these weeds come from? Do you see what the, the servants are asking? Lord, where did this evil come from? The question, my friends, is the problem of evil, perhaps the most frequently raised problem in the world and even in the church. I'm sure you've heard it before in many conversations with loved ones, co-workers, friends, and neighbors. If God is a God of love, why is there so much, why is there any evil in the world? And more, more specifically and closer to our parable, if God is building a church in the world, why are there so many evil persons in her? And maybe even closer to home, each of us should ask, why is there so much evil in me? Why is there this evil? In its way, the parable of the sower wrestled with this the, the question of, the church, and it answered it. But now the disciples want to know, where did these weeds come from? Why are they here? Why doesn't God do something about it? Tragedies happen. Horrific accidents devastate lives and families. Tyrants and dictators force their own plans on people and crush opposition. And they seem to get away with it. And many ask again and again, Why is God apparently silent? Why is God hidden? Why doesn't he step in and stop it? I'm sure you're very familiar with the question. And it may even be a question that you yourself personally have wrestled with. God, if you're a God of love, why do all these tragedies happen? Why do so many innocent people lose their lives to things that don't make any sense? And notice how Jesus answers this. 
An enemy did this. An enemy did this. These four words are all we get for an answer. We could be disappointed by the brevity. In fact, if I was a disciple at that very moment, I know what I would have done. I would have been worse than Peter. I would have said, Jesus, wait a minute. Hold on a second. What do you mean when you say that an enemy has done this? Whose enemy? Your enemy? You have an enemy? What's this enemy about? See, the answer does, it's it's short, it's brief, but it, it does supply us with a more important piece of information. God did not do the evil work. God is not culpable for the evil in the world. He is cleared of blame for evil. And for faith, this vindication is so important. The evil in the world, in church history, in ourselves, and who can deny it? It's not due to some idea that God did poor work in sowing his field. No, it is due to a just indicted enemy. And that enemy is the evil one. And he does have a presence in the world. And that's important for us to know, church. Jesus did not deny that there was an evil one in the world. Jesus did not deny that there was one who was like a a roaring lion, prancing around, seeking whom he could devour. He did not deny that. In fact, he acknowledged it. And so did the early church. And in our modern society today, we have lost grip of the reality that there's an evil one at work who is sowing weeds in the field. Maybe we think it's oversimple, oversimplification. Maybe we think, ah, oh, that was a myth. Ah, oh, people in the ancient days believed that. But we in modern society, we're too intelligent and we know too much to know that there's no such thing as the devil. But I tell you, friends, if the Son of God, who is God in flesh incarnate, is saying that there's an evil one at work, then we might want to take heed and say, yes, Lord, we agree. There is an evil one at work. In fact, Jesus' four words, an enemy did this. Do you notice they performed the same defense of God's honor as Genesis 1's creation climax when God said, behold, it was very good when he looked at all of his creation, which means no evil was laid upon the world by God's hand. These parables, they may not serve as a direct answer to the question of evil. And probably no direct, direct answer can be given in this life, but we must trust the words of our Lord and Savior who said, an enemy did this. Jesus was willing to acknowledge and confess that there's an evil one at work. But these parables also show through the various different stories that God's sovereign rule over the world isn't quite such a straightforward thing as we would like to sometimes imagine. Would we really like it if God were to rule the world directly and immediately so that our every thought and action were weighed and instantly judged 
and if necessary, punished in the scales of his absolute holiness. If the price of God stepping in and stopping a campaign of genocide were that he would also have to rebuke and restrain every evil thought and impulse, including those that we all still know and cherish within ourselves, would we be prepared to pay that price? If we ask God to act on special occasions, do we really think that he could do that simply when we want him to and then back off again for the rest of the time? Lord, take care of that dictator in Uganda. But Lord, don't investigate and and, and look at my own heart. That's not fair. Now, if God were to step in immediately... And weigh every evil action and every evil thought. Would any of us be able to stand before God? No. No, we wouldn't. We would be at his mercy. And we would have to come to an understanding that when God judges evil, he, does, he just doesn't judge it on large-scale events. He judges it on large-scale events, and he judges it in even individual lives. In the scales of his absolute righteousness and holiness. I personally wouldn't want the Lord to do that, would you? I think there would be much fear and trembling in my own heart. And yet there's a lesson here, isn't there? What are the weeds in our lives that we need to prune out? I hate weeds. How many of you have a flower garden? We have a flower garden, flower bed. Beautiful. My wife works really hard to tend the flower beds. But I hate weeds. When I see a weed, I want to pull it out. Or I want to take the roundup. That's the easy way. And just spray it, right? How do you think God feels about the weeds in the wheat field? You see, these parables are all about waiting. And waiting is what we all find difficult. The farmer waits for the harvest time, watching in frustration as the weeds grow alongside the wheat. Not only the farmer, but also the birds wait for the tiny mustard seed to grow into a large shrub. We didn't read that part in the gospel reading this morning, but that was between the actual parable of the weeds and the interpretation of it. And not only the birds that wait for the tiny mustard seed to grow in a large shrub, but the woman baking bread must wait for the leaven to spread its way through the dough until the whole loaf is mysteriously leavened. And that's what God's kingdom is like. As followers of Jesus, however, we don't want to wait, do we? If the kingdom was really present where Jesus was coming to birth and what he was doing, the disciples of Jesus in the first century, they wanted the whole thing at once. Lord, don't you want us to gather these weeds? And Jesus' answer is no. You see, they weren't interested in God's timetable. They had one of their own and expected God to conform to it. 
The farmer restrains them, though, because life is never that simple. In their zeal to rid, rid the field of weeds, they are very likely to pull up some wheat as well. At the heart of this parable of the weeds and the wheat is the note of patience. Not just the patience of the servants who have to wait and watch, but the patience of God himself. God didn't and doesn't enjoy the sight of a wheat field with weeds all over the place, but nor does he relish the thought of declaring harvest time too soon and destroying wheat along with weeds. But then we come to the interpretation of this parable. The explanation. Anyone who can't see that there is such a thing as serious and vicious evil in the world after all that's happened in the 20th, 21st century, and even before all that, you're simply wearing the wrong glasses because evil is present. And anyone who doesn't hope and pray that the God who made the world will one day make it right is is condemning themselves to regarding the world as at best a sick joke. But anyone who supposes that the true and living God, the world's creator, can make it right without confronting and defeating not only evil in the abstract level, But those who have given their lives and their energies to inventing and developing wickedness, profiting from it, luring others into it, and wreaking large-scale human devastation as a result is asking for a pipe dream. I have a good friend of mine who works with the uh, International Justice Mission. He lives in Roanoke. And almost every day, I get an email from him saying that another girl has been kidnapped for sexual slavery. Almost every day. There is evil in the world. And it's prevalent. But I tell you, friends, God will bring justice. God will make this world right. God will restore that which was broken. And you say, Pat, how can we know and understand? How can we really believe that God will make things right. And I just want to tell you that when you read the rest of this interpretation and explanation of the parable, you see God's justice at hand. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
but then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I don't get too excited about the justice over evil doors as much as I get the sense that when God comes again, when Christ comes again, there will be a restoration to this world where he makes all things right, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, that God will indeed rend the heavens and come down and the mountains will shake before his presence. That is what I get excited about the most. That when God restores all things, it won't be about our own pride and and vainglory. Because really, none of us are worthy of being restored. But when we realize that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, we realize that God will again restore his creation to even better than what it was before the fall. That he will make all things glorious. And as Jesus is telling this parable and he's given the explanation, there are things that he says that echo back to the book of Daniel, which in his day was one of those favorite books. Every Jew, every Hebrew loved the book of Daniel. Because they thought it was the soon to come victory of Israel over the nations. But I think Jesus was warning them that through what they were hoping for would indeed come soon. God's judgment might not be straightforward as they thought. And here is the point. You see, God has already started restoration. When Jesus was crucified. An atonement was made. For the sins of the world. For my evil, for your evil, for all evil, an atonement was made. The shedding of Jesus' innocent blood on the cross is able to cleanse all from iniquity and all from unrighteousness. But it doesn't stop at the death of Christ, does it? See, we move forward three days later when Jesus had been buried in a tomb. And three days later, he bursts forth from the tomb, risen from the dead. And I tell you, friends, the resurrection of Jesus is a promise that God will one day restore this world, this creation. He will make it right. As Paul writes in Romans 8, creation longs and moans for the day of redemption because it knows that brokenness will be wiped away. Sin will be done with. Death will no longer be. And life will flow from the throne of God into the stream of living water as it goes through the nations And the healing of the nations will be found on the leaves of the trees. And all things will be made right once again. What we do, (laughs) we wait well. We wait for that day when Jesus does come again and he restores all things. And there is a new heavens 
and a new earth. And we will reflect and embody the love and glory of God himself. That's what, after all, human beings were meant to do. Each human being is designed to be a God reflector. That's part of what being God's image is all about. And God intends that each of us should reflect a different facet of his glory. When his harvest is complete, we won't be like hundreds of identical bundles of wheat. Aren't you glad you won't look like me? We won't be identical bundles of wheat. We will be as different as the flowers and shrubs in a well-provided garden, only more so. And there's not a lot of human language that can really explain all this. It's pretty much inadequate at this point when we think about the new creation the new heavens and the new earth. Saying that we will have glory doesn't get us much further. Talking about, talk of power is easily misunderstood. But it's clear that what Jesus is talking about is a redeemed, renewed human race. That is at last what God meant it to be. The mirror in which the rest of creation can see who its creator really is. And can worship and serve him truly. When we read the awesome judgment scenes in the Bible. We must know that the world will see the true God. As he reveals himself to be supremely loving. Wise. Beautiful. Holy. Just. And true. That's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us. That's the God who made us. And that's the God who will make all things right when he comes again. And so we wait well. We wait well while we're on this mission. This mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God drawing near. This is why every Sunday we repeat the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That is the good news that we celebrate and we observe and we meditate on and we reflect on and we live out every day of our lives as we are living this mission with God, proclaiming that news to the world. Thank God it's not up to us. I can imagine myself being like the disciples. Jesus, let me go gather those weeds. I'm really good at pulling weeds out. I mean, really, I you know, just take my hand and pull them out from the root. I mean, it's pretty easy for me. The problem is, is I don't know. Truly is who is a wheat and who is a weed. And in fact, I kind of believe that God gives us all time to get the weeds out of us as he's pruning us and making us like his son. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God drawing near. That is the mission that Jesus has given us as we wait for him to come and restore this broken world.
Let's pray.